And good morning, everybody. And uh, it's good to be back kind of the normal, right? And our, our services, again, I'm very thankful and appreciative to everybody during the last three weeks when we've come together for our services. Y'all been had great attitudes about that, and I really appreciate that. I thought it was good for us to come together for the holidays, and that was good, but I'm glad we're back to normal. Well, I want to go off script just a little bit this morning as I did in the first service, but uh, just to let y'all know, we've got 24 of our middle school and high schoolers up in Gatlinburg, Tennessee with Alex and um, Scott and uh, some others of our adult leaders, and they've been at the Tennessee Christian Teen Convention all weekend, and they'll be coming back this afternoon. So y'all be praying for them, but that's a, a great opportunity they've had this weekend. So anyway, going off uh, my script just for a minute, something happened this week that really encouraged me, but also really uh, uh, surprised me. So um, uh, Monday night, um, my son Sawyer had basketball practice, and we play upward basketball, and our practice is pretty late. It's like at 8 o'clock, and we get through at 9, and we got home. And so, of course, I switch on the, the Bengals and Bills game, and I'm going, what the heck is going on? There's nobody on the field. Where, what has happened here? And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And, you know, within a few minutes, I finally realized what had gone on. And this, this guy, uh, DeMar Hamlin, had been in on a tackle, as y'all know, and he popped up, and then he just collapsed and had a cardiac arrest on the field and they were able to use CPR to resuscitate him and got him to the hospital. And for a couple of days, he was not breathing on his own, as y'all know. And um, they were able to, he's breathing on his own now, doing, doing much better. But what I was really encouraged and shocked by was, you know, during that game, here are some of the best athletes in the world, and they are in shock right now, you know, because they kind of think like, you know, I did when I was 20 and playing ball and stuff, that we're indestructible, nothing can ever happen to us. And now somebody, one of them, is laying on the ground that could be dead, and they are crying, and then all of a sudden you see them grouping up, and they're praying both teams, and nobody wants to continue because all of a sudden it doesn't matter about a football game, it matters about this individual life. And so I was very encouraged by that. But then on ESPN, um, a little bit later in the week, there's a guy, one of their analysts, football analysts named Dan Orlovsky, and we actually played some, he's a strong Christian guy, um, and we played some of him last year when we did Football Sunday, but he's talking about, you know, what's going on with DeMar, and it's to, he's still not out of the woods, and he goes, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I'm just going to pray, and they're live on air, and I'm going, what? ESPN's going to do this? Because there's been a few times I want to throw a brick through the TV at them. Um, but he just, and the other guy that's analyst with him goes, yeah, absolutely, it's appropriate. Let's pray. And they pray for his family, and he had this great prayer and said amen, and nobody got fired, uh, nobody got canceled or anything like that. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is the way it should be. And then yesterday, I think there was a couple of other games. Y'all probably watched some of those. And before those games, the players were coming together before the game and praying together on the field, not only praying you know, for DeMar Hamlin, but also thanking God that he is better and, and is doing better. And I was like, man, there's always light in the darkness, isn't there? Always. And I know some of you are going, I don't even watch the NFL because, you know, and I get it. My dad used to do all that. I get that. But still, there is a dark world out there, but it can, you know, light will always, always, always penetrate the darkness, right? Always. So I was very, very encouraged by that, and I hope you all are. Um, as well. And this has nothing to do with that game tomorrow night, okay? And I'm a Georgia Tech fan, and I don't really care, but I'm going to watch it because I love football, but, you know, it's just one of those things. But anyway, that was very encouraging in the world of football 
um, uh, this week. And I think even better things will happen because of this. Um, so anyway, if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week, I started a new sermon series. And I, uh, I'm really going through the book or the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. And uh, I started with this question or this thought that I stole from this little message board that my wife put up in her house. But it said, one day or day one you decide. Now, let me tell you another funny story about this. So I sent this to Taylor ahead of time saying, hey, this is what my sermon series is going to be. And as Taylor read it in my email, she thought I was asking her, do I want the sermon series to be day one or one day? You decide. That's what she thought. You see, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. And she goes, I said, no, no, that's actually the name of the whole sermon. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was, that was pretty funny. But anyway, but I don't know about y'all, but that's kind of haunted me thinking about that. And as I talked about last week, we all have things um, that we have said in our life. One day I'm going to, and somewhere along the lines that we made plans or whatever to do that one day thing, um, some of those things never have happened. That one day has never become day one. And there have been a lot of reasons for that. And we could say, oh, well, it was because of this, and this happened in my life, and this season in my life, all those things. But at some point, a big percentage of those things that never happened are because I never started day one. I never made the commitment to really do that thing I said, one day I'm going to do. And the same is true as we talked about last week in our relationship with God. I think we all would agree, I want to get closer to God. But if I don't make a day one commitment to do things that get me there, it's just going to be, well, one day I'll start reading through the Bible. Well, one day, and I was glad to hear that you're reading through the Bible. And it is tough at those begots and all that, you know. It is tough, but you started day one. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. So we started last week in Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I shared that Mark interviewed a lot of eyewitnesses to get his information. People that were with Jesus, that worked with Jesus, that saw the things um, that he did. And we really believe that Peter, who was one of the original 12 disciples, that Mark interviewed him for a lot of his information because Peter was there with Jesus during his whole ministry and he could get all the information or a lot of the information from him under, of course, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so Mark challenges us as readers to answer this question, as I shared with you last week, is Jesus really the Messiah? He was writing that for people back in his time in the first century, but some 2,000 years later, there's still a question out there among humans, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really who he says he is? And so Mark says, in my gospel, I want you to see for yourself if Jesus really is the Messiah. So Mark tells us what he thinks, and he presents this fast-paced, action-type movie presentation of Jesus' life so that we can make a decision on it. And last week we started in chapter 1, and we saw several confirmations that Jesus is the Messiah as Jesus started what seemed to be day one of his public ministry. Now, we have baby Jesus in the manger, but then all of a sudden, we don't really hear much about Jesus except in 12 years old, and then we don't hear again until Jesus is about 30. So you know between those 1 and 30 years, people are going, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Savior of the world, when are you going to do something? And I don't mean that from you know, birth or 12 to 30 that Jesus did nothing. I'm sure in heaven we'll get to hear a lot of those cool stories, but we don't know. And then all of a sudden, so I know there were people like, when is he going to get started? If he is a Messiah, why doesn't he do something? But at age 30, we all of a sudden start seeing specifically day one of things are happening as the Messiah. 
And so today we're going to look at some more footage, if you will, from Mark's gospel of Jesus' life as he calls the first disciples. So he's starting his ministry, but now he's calling disciples. So we're going to read uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 28. And y'all can read along with me as Mark gives us this scene. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Then they went to Capernaum. They went to Capernaum, and then the Sabbath came. Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them with one, as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently, and he came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So we're going to unpack this a little bit. But again, Mark's just going, here's Jesus. As the Messiah, what do you think? You see what he's done here? It's kind of hard to not see that this guy is of God. He is special. So Simon and Andrew encountered Jesus and he told them to come and follow him. He says, I'll send you out to fish for people. And most of us grew up hearing, I will make you fishers of men, right? We remember that, I mean, King James or whatever. But fishers of men, that's always been a cool term, fishers of men. Jesus used what they were already doing in their life vocation and said, you're still going to do that, but I'm going to send you out to do something different along those same lines. And that stuck with them. But they at once, and Mark says these kind of words a lot in his Gospels, at once, immediately, without waiting, he goes. And so it says, at once they left their nets and followed Jesus. Now, this is not like just a couple of buddies fishing and it's been a terrible day and they just want to, eh, man, we're not catching anything anyway. No, this is what they did for a living. For, for them to just drop their nets and follow Jesus' significance. And then not far from, from uh, Simon and Andrew, he meets James and John, sons of Zebedee. And they're not just preparing their nets. John, I mean, Mark specifically says they are in a boat preparing their nets. And it says that they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed Jesus. So I don't know if Andrew and uh, Simon had their own boat, but James and John, they have a family boat. And they have hired men, and the two brothers who were part of this family business, it seems to be, are saying, we're leaving right now. And they left their dad with the hired men, because they're not hired men, they're part of the family business, and they go to follow Jesus. This is very significant. And so what would make... This Andrew and this Simon, these brothers, leave their nets at once. What would make these other fishermen, James and John, leave not only their nets but a boat and a family business with the hired hands, with their dad, and go follow this guy who says he's the Messiah? That's unusual. 
And this is more than just Mark's literary style and saying immediately and they without haste, all that kind of stuff. He is showing us the urgency in, this, in these men to stop in the middle of their work, their vocation that earns them a living, and follow this rabbi that some think is the Messiah. It's amazing when you think about it. I read an article this week along the lines of this um, uh, text that we're looking at today. Um, it's called The Theology of the Work Project. And so this writer here is saying this is more than just a challenge to leave behind income and stability, or as we might put it, we've heard this term before, uh, get out of our comfort zone, right? We've all probably heard that before. Jesus calls us to get out of our comfort zone and do something great for his kingdom. But Mark's account of this incident records these details of things like James and John leaving their specific father, Zebedee, out of this specific boat. These are significant things. They themselves, again, they're not hired hands. They are rather part of relatively what seems to be a successful family business. And uh, Suzanne Watts Henderson notes in, in, a, in another article in relation, he says, the piling up of these particulars underscores the full weight of the verb here to leave. They're not just leaving nets, but a named father, a boat, and indeed an entire enterprise. So this is significant. For these disciples to follow Jesus, they have to demonstrate a willingness to allow their identity, their status, and their worth to primarily be determined now in relation to Jesus and not what they do in their own lives. So probably most of us know in that culture, in that time of the world, in that first century, fishing was a major industry in Galilee, and a connected sub-industry was fish salting. And you might go, what? Fish salting? What is that? Well, they didn't have refrigerators, right? They didn't have ice, and if fishing is a major industry there and people get fish, you got a way to keep them fresh, right? And so they didn't have uh, you know, refrigerators and freezers, so they had to pack them in salt to preserve them and to sell them. So that was two major industries. And at this time, there was a kind of a social turbulence in Galilee, and these two, unreal, or these two related industries supported each other, and they remained pretty steady because everybody ate fish. It was something that a lot of people could do. And economic stability is no longer their chief purpose for these disciples because they're willing to drop that. The willingness of them to forsake such stability is really quite remarkable. But we still must be cautious here. Jesus does not reject them as being fishermen as part of their um, earthly vocation, but he reorients what they're doing. Jesus calls Simon and Andrew and James and John to be fishers of men, fishers of people, thereby affirming their former work as an image of this new role that he's called them into. You can still fish because we know from reading the Gospels, they don't stop fishing, but it's not their primary role anymore. It's something they do besides be a follower of Jesus. So can you imagine just for a minute, and some of y'all don't have full-time jobs, some of y'all are younger and maybe in school, but can you imagine someone showing up at your place of work right when you're busiest and saying, hey, come follow me. I got something that's going to change your life. <laughs> I mean, how many of us are going to go, uh, call security and get this Looney Tune out of here? But this is really what happens with Jesus. Oh, well, that was different. It was on the shore and all that. No, this is what they do for a living. It's not buddies fishing. This is what they do every day and their family eating and, and all that stuff. And the, uh, the town people are waiting for fish to be brought in so they can eat. This is a big deal. And they just all walk away from that that day. Another um, 
I read another article along the same lines in this text today. A guy named Matt Broadway said this. He says, Note who initiates this calling process. The four men whom Jesus calls were working, focusing on their nets when they saw Jesus, and he called them. Jesus does the calling. He initiates, and his followers respond. This means there's never any reason, reason, any reason for us to be proud of being a Christian. We don't do anything. Jesus did the calling. If he didn't, we would still be in our boats fiddling with our nets. Think about that for a minute. If Jesus hasn't called me, I'd still be in my, in my boat fiddling with my nets. Or I'd still be parked in front of ESPN, not really paying attention to the rest of the world. And so it's true. It also means that there is hope. For even the most sinful of people, but because becoming a disciple does not um, require willpower or moral fortitude, it requires us to respond to Jesus' call. It's not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus does for us and has done for us. The first people were called fishermen, the first disciples, and they were common men at this common trade. And historians say that on an average day on the Sea of Galilee, some 300 boats would be going out. Now, if there's 300 boats going out in Galilee, that means they're probably filled with a lot of guys, right? That's a lot of guys jockeying for position out there to bring fish in and to make money. And so on any given day on the Sea of Galilee, which they estimate was about 65 square miles large, there would have been many fishermen out there. And Jesus handpicks these four guys to be his disciples. And he doesn't pick them because they're extraordinary individuals. He picks them because he's an extraordinary Savior who wants to take us right where we are and take us to where he's always created us to be. And that's what he does. Now, I want to go off script a little bit here. And I want to encourage y'all. Some of y'all are already watching this. I've talked to you about it. But this uh, uh, thing called The Chosen that's out about the life of Jesus, y'all, it's phenomenal. You need to watch it. You need to get it, download it on your phone. I can't believe that it's completely publicly funded and it just keeps going and keeps going. But their presentation of Jesus and the disciples and the gospels is amazing. Now, they do some liberty at kind of speculating and all that, but they've done a fabulous job. And I would encourage you to watch this and to send it to friends because I know of people that haven't been in church for years and they're watching this now and they're going, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. And so I want to encourage you. But he's, they're talking in that series about all these things and they bring it tonight alive. So you might be going, well, that's great, Craig. Thanks for giving us a history lesson on fishing industry in first century Galilee. Who cares? Why are you telling us this? Well, Mark, again, is trying to get us to say and answer the question, is Jesus the Messiah some 2,000 years later? We still need to know that. It still matters to us as humans 2,000 years later because our Life here and now matters what we do with Jesus as Messiah. And our eternal destiny certainly matters on what we do with Jesus as the Messiah. Well, last week we talked about um, the confirmations we got in that first part of chapter 1. Mark told, hey, I believe he's the Messiah. He refers us to Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah and the forerunner of that in John. John confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as he was baptized. Confirmation of Jesus as Messiah. Then you hear this voice. Eyewitnesses go, there was a voice that says, this is my son whom I love. This is confirmation that this is the Messiah. And then even after Jesus' baptism, he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And Satan is trying to trip him up. Why? Because he knows he's the Messiah. Satan 
knows he's the Messiah. And Jesus confirmed, as we read last week, that he says, the kingdom of God is near. I have become the word of God. I have become flesh. And now I'm dwelling here on the earth. The Messiah is here. But what confirmation did we get from our text today? Well, these fishermen decide that they're going to make day one of following Jesus right now. Notice, we certainly didn't hear Andrew or Simon or James or John say, Oh, hold on, Jesus. Can you not see we're in the middle of fishing here? One day I'll be one of your followers, but not today, because you can see Dad's going to be upset, you know, Mr. Zebedee, and he doesn't want us to leave. So I'll one day be your follower. No, it was day one for them. Now, why was that? They had an immediate response to Jesus specifically calling on them. Now, Simon and Andrew were originally from Bethsaida, and on the, which is on the far end of the Sea of Galilee where the river fills up the lake. But they were now living in Capernaum. I guess the fishing's better in Capernaum, and that's where they live, a little bit further west. But the details of the encounter that Jesus meets them, that they are casting their net, again supports the idea that Peter's actually telling Mark about what happened that day. Mark's saying, tell me about when you first got called to follow Jesus, Peter. What was that like? He goes, well, we were doing our nets, and Jesus walks by and says, come follow me. And man, we just dropped our nets. So this is like this eyewitness thing. This is not the first time the two brothers had met Jesus, though. You might think that, but it wasn't. John's gospel tells us in the first chapter that John the Baptist, when Jesus came to get baptized, Andrew was actually there, and he heard him say, Behold, the Lamb of God is here. And Andrew goes, That's the Messiah? And John the Baptist is saying yes. And he goes back and tells his brother Peter, And it says that actually Andrew and another friend followed Jesus and walked around with him all day long. John's gospel tells us that. And so he comes back and tells his brother Peter and the chosen. They do a great job of that, by the way. And he says, well, I found the Messiah. He's so excited about it. So they have heard that he's the Messiah. So if they've already been talking about Jesus and had interaction with him, and now he's called them to be his follower, they were ready to drop everything and anything. But there's another critical element here that I think Mark is giving to us as confirmation that Jesus really is a Messiah. Jesus certainly has it, but he has this thing called authority. Do you all understand in life, we know people that are in authority, but there's a lot of people in authority we don't respect. You know what I mean, Vern? They have that position, but we don't respect them because they're not really good leaders, are they? And that can hurt their authority. But Jesus has this authority. Jesus certainly has it. And people, as we read in that passage, were amazed when he went into Capernaum and teaches in, on the Sabbath day in their synagogue. In verse 21, it says, They went into Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. See, they've been listening to the teachers of the law. And between the end of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to the beginning of the New Covenant, we never heard of Pharisees, did we? But all of a sudden in the New Testament, we open up and we're talking about Pharisees. And there had been added from the Old Testament to the New Testament some 600 extra laws. So what we find out is those who were supposed to be leading people to God were leading people to law. They didn't worship God anymore. They worshiped the law. They were legalists. And this is what had happened. So when Jesus comes in to teach, these people are used to hearing the teachers of the law come in every Sabbath day, wah, 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 like Charlie Brown's teacher, just law after law after law. 
And it wasn't doing anything. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes in and they say, he's different. He's not like those teachers of the law. What he says, what he's saying, the truth of what he's saying is connecting us to God, not to a law, but to God, our creator. And it made a difference. And they said, he has authority. And then in the midst of their synagogue, in the midst of the Sabbath day, in the midst of their worship service, a guy who's demon-possessed, and my question is, how did he get in there? But you don't always know, right? You don't always know. And we laugh about that. We go, oh, you know, that's demon-possession. That's not real. <laughs> that was back in Jesus' time. No, it's real. It really is real, and we don't really experience it, but it is real. I've seen it one time in my life, and I can tell you it is real. But as this guy gets up, all of a sudden, he's not trying to disrupt the service he recognizes, or this demon inside of him, this unclean spirit, as Mark calls it, says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How does an unclean spirit, a demon, know where Jesus lives and where he's from? Have you come to destroy us? They know his authority and his power. I know who you are, Holy One of God. This is a demon, y'all. He recognizes, it recognizes who Jesus is. Another confirmation of Jesus being the Messiah. And then Jesus says, be quiet and says sternly, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently. and he came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed and they asked each other, what is this? Can you imagine today if we had somebody that started doing some of that here and, and, and came forward and then, you know, I said, you know, come out of him. And all of a sudden the guy or the gal fell on the floor and shriek, and then that person was fine. You wouldn't be talking about my sermon at lunch, would you? You'd be talking about that. But this really happened in the middle of a worship service, and that blows me away. And let's not, you know, just gloss over the fact that this person who had this unclean spirit, can you imagine what that would be like, your life? I don't think anybody signs up to go, hey, yeah, I want to have a demon for a few weeks, see how that works in my life. This person was traumatized was in some kind of a prison, and now they're free. So Jesus is not just going, look what I can do. He was saying, this man is tortured, and I'm going to free him from that. And I have the authority over evil spirits. I have the authority over darkness. That, those people in that church and in that world knew there was a dark world out there with evil, real evil. And to have Jesus be able to cast that demon out said something about who he was. Not only his compassion for this man, but his power over the darkness. So these are very obvious confirmations in Mark's writing to us going, I'm telling you, Peter told me he was there that day. This really happened. Is he the Messiah? I'm pretty sure he is. But you have to decide. The ordinary fishermen in the middle of their day drop everything to follow Jesus. That's confirmation. Jesus teaching people and they hear his teaching and they are amazed at his teaching and then they see this, um, uh, this casting out or this... Uh, of this demon, and they say that actually acknowledge where Jesus lives and who he is, they say this has got to be the Messiah. And the people who experience this exorcism, they're amazed and they say, What is this? A new teaching with authority. They not only are are, you know, amazed at Jesus' teaching, but the the authority he has says, This guy is different. So Mark seems to be saying without saying it, see for yourself, is this the Messiah? 
And people, when they first experience Jesus, are acknowledging that this is day one. This is the beginning of something special. And news about him has spread quickly all over the region of Galilee, Mark tells us. And what I think is amazing is that Jesus, through Mark, over 2,000 years later, is still calling us to be disciples, y'all. He's still calling us. And it's not just calling you out as a fisherman, but maybe as a teacher or a pilot or a salesperson or an attorney, or whatever it is you do, and there's lots of different uh, backgrounds we come, but he's still asking us to come and follow him, and he will send us out to fish for people. And you know, we can get caught up in, in what we do for a living, don't we? This is what I do, this is who I am, and it's so important, and it can kind of consume us. And um, you know what, it can even happen as a pastor of a church. And I need to be sure that I'm really being a follower of Jesus because sometimes as a pastor I can just be, well, I've got to keep the church going and it's got to look good and all that kind of stuff. But I may not have any relationship with Jesus and it's not growing because I've made being a pastor the thing that's most important. And when I do that, I'm not really following Jesus, am I? And that goes for you as a teacher or, or whatever it is that you do, a, a pilot or, or, or a salesperson, or whatever you do, if what you do is more important than your relationship with Christ, there's a disconnect there. And that's what this passage is telling us about. So the question for us is, is as it was for those first disciples, will we make this day one of following Jesus? Are we going to say, well, as soon as I get my work together, as soon as I get this you know, squared away, then I'll become a follower of Jesus or say, I can't today, I'm too busy. I mean, come on, Jesus, you know somebody's got to make a living. You understand that. But one day I'll come follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't need somebody that's going to do it one day. I need somebody that's going to do it now. And I don't believe Jesus necessarily calls us to leave our jobs or, or become preachers and missionaries, although he calls some people to that. But we're called to position our identity in Christ, whether we leave our jobs or not. Uh, a disciple's identity is no longer a fisherman, no longer a tax collector or a teacher, but they're now a follower of Jesus. And that's what Jesus calls us to. This challenges us to resist the temptation to make our work the defining element of our sense of who we are. And some of us do that. It's not who we really are. Jesus didn't reject the vocation of those early disciples, but he reoriented it. You're still going to be fishermen, but now you're going to be fishing for men. And he affirmed their former work as an image of the new role which he called them to. I had a guy yesterday, I was at a, a memorial service here, and he said to me this, he goes, I don't want to offend you because I know you're a preacher, but you do realize that people that work out in the, in the real world, <laughs> he says, they have a lot more opportunity to influence people for Christ than you do. I didn't get offended at all. I said, you couldn't be more right. You could not be more right. And I hope you all hear that. You have the opportunity that people would never talk to me because I think I'm a self-righteous, you know, got it all figured out person. And y'all can just tell him he doesn't. But anyway, you know, they will ask you questions that they would never ask me. And so that's absolutely true. And this, when we read this passage, is another reminder of that. Jesus says, I can do all of this, but I need fishermen. I need fishermen that can talk to other fishermen. And I believe Jesus wants to do the same with us. He wants us to take the roles and the vocations that we have in our everyday lives and reorient those into a new role which he has called us to 
as his followers? And so are we willing to drop what we're doing and start day one to follow Jesus? Are we able to understand that if Jesus is the Messiah and he has the authority that he says he does, that Mark tells us he does, then that requires something of me, doesn't it? I can't be the same. My identity can't be based on my work or vocation. To go back to a quote I shared earlier, for these disciples to follow Jesus, they had to, they had to demonstrate a willingness to allow their identity and their status and their worth to primarily be determined in relation to Jesus now. Not their work, but to Jesus now. So are you and I willing to demonstrate to start day one of allowing Jesus to be the authority, the true authority of our life, to submit our identity, our vocation, our roles and our talents and our worth to be determined not by the world, not by my work, but in relation to Jesus? And what steps do we need to take to be a follower of Jesus and to start fishing for people? Even in your schools, even in your businesses, in your jobs, and in your neighborhoods, and in a lot of cases, even in our families, we can be fishing for people, can't we? And some of y'all know, you're thinking, yeah, you don't know my family, they're a tough catch. Hope you got some good lures. (laughs) But it's true. So you have to start day one for that to be a reality of your life, don't you? Day one, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus in every aspect of my life. So we're going to offer an opportunity as we do every week. Maybe there's somebody here today that has not made that day one decision to be, that Jesus will be your Lord and your Savior. And so the team's going to come up and they're going to have a song for us. And if you have a decision that you would like to make, and I know some people aren't comfortable coming forward, but if you're thinking about that, We have people in our connection corner. We have people all week here at the church that will be glad to talk to you about that. And I hope you will keep that in mind if you're not comfortable coming forward because we understand that. But also, if you're visiting with us for the first time today and are a guest, we take communion each week, and that's what we're going to do next in our service after the song. And so let's use this time uh, to uh, reflect on our lives, to understand and think about what Mark has just taught us and, and, and think about that Jesus ultimately became Savior of the world by dying on the cross for us. He didn't just say all these things. Casting out a demon didn't save you from, our, from your sins or my sins, but Jesus' death on the cross did. And his resurrection gives us eternal life. And so in communion, Jesus asked us to remember that as we are his disciples. So we're going to give you that opportunity in just a little bit. But before we do that, let's stand and let's sing this song and, and prepare our hearts for communion. And if you do have a decision, I'll be right here.